0: Happy New Year and welcome back to another episode of Red Medicine, a podcast about radical politics, medical anthropology, and the sociology of science. This is the first in a two-part interview with Beatrice Adler Bolton, a writer, artist, and co-host of Death Panel, a podcast about the political economy of health. She's also co-author, alongside R.T. Veerkant, of the recently published Health Communism from Verso Books. Before we get to that though, I'd just like to say a big thank you to everyone who supported Red Medicine throughout last year. I'm very excited about what's to come this year, uh, and you can expect more episodes on a wide range of topics. Some of the episodes in the coming weeks cover topics including psychoanalysis in Palestine, the history of capitalism and alcohol, how the military redefined trauma, and a discussion with the wonderful people over at Parapraxis magazine. If you don't want to miss all that, make sure you're subscribed, and if you want to support Red Medicine, you can do so by giving us a five-star review on Apple or Spotify, donating some money on the website, or you could just share this or any future episodes on social media to help introduce more people to the podcast. Finally, I'd just like to say a big thank you to Mark Pilkington, who has provided the soundtrack for this and forthcoming episodes of Red Medicine. In Health Communism, today's guest Beatrice Adler Bolton and a co-author Artie Verkant provide a horizon for the left to orientate themselves towards. That horizon is the demand for all care for all people. Building on the work they do over on Death Panel, the podcast they host with Phil Rocco, Jules gil and Abby Cartus, this book is essential reading for anyone who wants a serious analysis of how capitalism shapes what we think of as health. In the first half of the interview, I asked Beatrice about how health communism provides us with the tools to critique the National Health Service from the left. Specifically, we explore the long history of healthcare being used as a way to discipline and punish the working class, and why we shouldn't be afraid to demand more from the NHS, despite the establishment's enforced austerity. In the second part of the interview, which we'll be publishing next week, we talk about the Socialist Patients Collective, or SPK for short, to whom health communism is dedicated. SPK were a group of patients that came together in post-war Germany to produce one of the most valuable critiques of capitalism and health in the 20th century. Despite, or more accurately, because of this, they were violently repressed by the state and pushed into obscurity. However, before that, a conversation about the NHS, which I began by asking Beatrice about this demand of all care for all people. Specifically, why those that think the NHS are already doing this might be mistaken. You know, in health communism in the book and the kind of broader political project, you're you're calling for care for all people. And I guess some people in the UK will hear that and they will maybe assume that that's what the NHS is already doing or is already meant to try and do. And yet you're challenging that. And I wondered if we could start by asking you why you challenge that and why you feel like the NHS is kind of distinct and doing something def- different from what you're outlining in the book.
1: Yeah, absolutely. This is a great question and something that uh, my co-author Artie and I think about a lot, because what happens in the United States often when we start talking about health reforms and particularly large system level reforms like reforms to health finance, um, probably the most well-known proposal could be something like Medicare for all which is really just dealing with almost one aspect of healthcare, it's just dealing with the financial payer, right? Mm. Right now, that's kind of the total horizon um, for the broader left in the United States for talking about sort of health reforms. Medicare for all is very much, unfortunately, the ceiling. And oftentimes, we talk about The kind of system we have in the United States relative to other systems, for example, the NHS system in the UK, the Medicare system in Canada, or I think what's probably also mentioned most often by people in comparison is something like the Scandinavian health system, where you do have what is often in name sort of socialized medicine. and the comparison that's often made between the U.S. and other countries who have different um, systems with different financial models um, in terms of delivering care, but also in terms of different structural models, is that we have, you know, this very rich country with uh, lots of citizens paying lots of taxes and that we've sort of paid in and deserve something equal to, quote unquote, socialized medicine in other countries. And that's a framing that fundamentally Artie and I take a lot of issue with because it doesn't actually reflect reality. The idea that, um, you know, the NHS is a truly socialized system of medicine um, really ignores a lot of the systems of the NHS, a lot of the things that are built into the structure of the NHS. Like for example, um, very early on in the, the design and development, one of the kind of key questions that was being discussed between lawmakers and regulators was, well, how do we deal with the necessary component of competition that's required in order to fuel innovation in a system? And, you know, as we've seen over decades and decades, um, (laughs) the NHS has become increasingly privatized. There have been um you know layers and layers of austerity that have been applied to this system that have taken it very far away from a kind of categorical definition of all care for all people which is really what we're advocating for in health communism we don't want to be advocating for health reforms that simply stay locked into one country we don't want to be advocating for health reforms that are based on ideas like nationality and citizenship that take people's migration, you know, and, and say that basically if you're coming into the country and you're not a citizen, if you're not paying and as a taxpayer, maybe because you're a non-worker, maybe because you're not a citizen, you know, for whatever reason that you're sort of categorically excluded, like as, as a baseline, just the way that these systems are set up where nationality and citizenship is a pre-qualifying factor in a lot of ways for participation long term in these systems, you know, even down to, for example, like in Germany, if you are expected to buy private insurance and sort of in order to cover yourself so that you're not taking away from these resources that have been allocated for people who are citizens, who are taxpayers. Right. And so you have this kind of fundamental nationalistic limitation to a lot of systems of socialized medicine. And also often you have internally within these systems, these artificial frameworks of competition, driving innovation, or of um, sort of creating artificial markets within the systems itself. And sometimes this is something like Italy, where you have a kind of highly regulated and controlled private insurance market that exists concurrent with a socialized system. Sometimes this looks like the Canadian Medicare system, where from province to province, you have very different benefits. You also have benefits that are not covered under the traditional sort of health services that you have to then buy insurance on top of that, like, for example, for prescription coverage, for dental. And while the NHS is often held up as one of the most comprehensive examples, I think Looking to the austerity that's been applied to the gender identity clinic system is the perfect example of why the NHS is not all care for all people and it is not as expansive as we would hope that the global left might want to focus its efforts and its advocacy on in terms of when we're thinking about what a real horizon of health care could be, you know, beyond our one country or one sort of election cycle or one policy, you know, what do we really want as a left? I think we want a less brutal um, life that that we all deserve, that we all want. You know, we want better working conditions. We want better living conditions. We want not just access to care, but real care. And when we think about the kinds of things that, for example, have been prioritized in the NHS and what has not been prioritized, (laughs) And how that's also played out during COVID, for example, you know, ridiculous wait times. I have a friend who waited two days for an ambulance recently, um, just just outside of London. And and these are the kinds of things where, you know, what's what's happening is not just that patients are experiencing lower levels of care than they deserve, but that all of these decisions of austerity, they have to come from somewhere and they come from the labor power and the physical surplus labor of the workers that are part of that system. So you cannot have a system of truly socialized medicine that has these artificial scarcity frameworks built into it, but also that treats its workers as such disposable cogs that need to be put into a market to to sort of create this incentivization. And so one of the things that we're really pushing in health communism, and we open the book Sort of with this criticism of uh, the NHS, and I think the limitations of a lot of our hopes and dreams for what healthcare could be, right? Which I think we limit because of the political realities that we live under, the kind of political imaginary of what is possible. I mean, this is not, you know, a kind of criticism of saying that. Health finance reforms are bad. It's just that these should not be the ceiling. These should not be the kind of long game horizon that that we're politically orienting our praxis and our movements around um, that we need to actually think bigger than individual finance reforms. We need to think bigger than simply creating a means of allocating resources, we actually have to make sure that we're setting systems up to be able to meet the need that they are designed to meet and not designing them to look like they can meet need that they are never intended to design. A really, really great example of this that we use in the book early on is actually an American system that was set up after the Civil War. And it was specifically a series of care homes, of long-term care homes like uh, sort of nursing facilities, almost um, back, obviously, before uh, long term care existed during the Civil War for people who had um, who were formerly enslaved people who had basically abandoned run away at great personal risk from the plantations where they were uh, held as property in order to defect to the Union Army. And so they said, you know, if you defect, if you risk your life to fight Will grant you citizenship at the end of the war, and will make sure that you're you're cared for. But what the u s. government did is that instead of making sure that, for example, that they were going to build enough uh, infrastructure to support this promise that they had made, instead, they set up a system of administrative burdens to Slow the demand on the system that they knew was never going to be adequate for the population that they had promised it to. And this is, I think, a kind of classic example of how we see a lot of welfare systems and benefit programs designed. You recognize a kind of near universal level of need, and then you design administrative burdens in order to, you know, make these systems quote unquote cost neutral or cost effective. And this is part of what is generally an economic valuation of life, right, where we, we value life not for its sort of intrinsic existence, I guess is the word, but we value life along a kind of economic and moral gradient, right, where certain people's lives mean more and are more valuable to, to quote-unquote society than others. And when our systems of, of care allocation and resource allocation, when it comes to healthcare are designed under these principles of the economic valuation of life, which, as we say in the book, and and our main critique of the NHS is that this is such a system that has been designed to deliver socialized medicine that falls under still the economic valuation of life. And so what this is going to mean is that for folks who are on disability benefits, that they're going to be subject to, you know, really invasive surveillance in order to you know, make sure and prove that they are not, uh, quote unquote, cheating the government, that there's not waste, fraud and abuse. And so I think what we're asking people with health communism is not just to imagine what all care for all people could be like in your community, but what that actually means as a statement, what it actually would mean to give people the things that they need, and to be able to give people those resources. And I think as we've seen in the context of the COVID vaccine, for example, this is a really great example of uh, where something like all care for all people can really stand in and, and shine, right? Because if we think about how to handle the COVID pandemic, right, and how to handle the vaccine rollout in a way that would be congruent to health communism, that would be in in sort of alignment with the goals of the book and the kind of lessons we're trying to teach people, well, the the sort of landscape of vaccine apartheid would, would not exist. The idea of countries having to put out collateral in order to get purchase orders for vaccines would not exist. Pfizer would not be allowed to control prices. This would not be a kind of system where certain countries are getting allocated certain vaccines and other countries are not going to have access at all. And these are the kinds of things where you know we can't think of health as being something that can be contained within borders because it's not and covid is 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 proving this to us over and over and over again and has been for the last couple of years but this is not a problem that covid started this is a problem that preexisted covid that is built into so many of our systems of socialized medicine which is also part of the reason why you know we start with this critique of you know what socialized medicine is and and sort of what the realm of demands and political imagination has been around healthcare and we also start with sort of making the statement of explicitly you know we're not going to be touching on covid in the book there's a version of health communism you know that we could have written that was only about covid but that could have given people the impression that any of this is new And fundamentally, you know, none of this is. And the lessons we're learning from COVID are the same lessons that we can learn from a critique of the NHS, for example. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's interesting you say that as you're speaking, I was was thinking about the section in the book where you talk about the Elizabethan poor laws uh, in the UK. And I was kind of shocked and saddened at how the culture and policy that those laws inflicted really feels like still so present i mean could you talk a little bit about those laws and why and what they reveal about the function of healthcare under capitalism
1: absolutely this is this is one of my favorite sort of stories in the book and it comes from the labor chapter where we talk about this idea of the worker surplus binary which is really it kind of ties into the the broader way that we conceptualize welfare systems, right, where you have um, a kind of earning body politic, the citizenry, who pay into something that then covers the burdensome few, the kind of margins, the, the disabled people, the non workers, elderly people, children, poor people, etc. And the idea is kind of that you know the non-worker what we we call the surplus class um in the book which is kind of reclamation of of what used to be a very <laughs> derogatory framing to call a, a surplus class this is more of a kind of reappropriation of of and recontextualization of that criti- you know critique of of the surplus as being surplus itself and so this idea right is that you have this larger body politic the earning majority and then the kind of non-earning Surplus class exists as almost like a parasitic uh, leech on the earners, and this is a kind of uh, dynamic that we we see all of the time. Whether that's in discussion of national debt and and spending, whether that's a discussion of you know education or disability writ large, whether that's a discussion of houselessness and the cost of living. So often, this kind of idea of the worker and surplus binary, this binary between the productive and the unproductive, is leveraged in order to kind of perpetuate these frameworks of austerity that we were we were just talking about and critiquing. And what we try and tell with this story, looking back to the early sort of pre capitalist moment, right? Um, looking at these poor laws, which were established in the wake of massive worker deaths during the Black Death. You know, you have a shift, a very novel legal construction in defining the surplus class and defining within that class who is allowed to be a non-worker, who's a valid non-worker, and who's someone who is deviant in their refusal to work. And this, we argue, is essentially not just, you know, a kind of causal legal structure that helps support the development of capitalism, but that this kind of segmentation of the non-working population into those who can be reclaimed, you know, through criminalization, through forced work (laughs) back into the labor force, and those who quote-unquote deserve not to work, that this is actually a necessary precondition in order to create the conditions necessary, the labor discipline necessary for capitalism to actually develop. So this is a really important kind of novel legal, legal structure that emerges essentially out of workers having a little bit more power because there were suddenly fewer of them. And what what starts happening during Edward III's reign is that you you have the statute of laborers pass. And this essentially, for, for one of the first times, begins to regulate uh, the post-plague labor market. It, it's a kind of compulsion to work. It makes not working illegal unless you own land. And this is something that wasn't really conceptually employed at such a broad scale. And And really what this had to do with, more than anything else, was also a system of municipal taxes, where each community became responsible for supporting that small sliver of valid non-workers. And so it starts to create this idea, right, and, and really cement within law, within administrative law, which is, I think, sort of our most important argument here is how administrative law reproduces these ideas and how it's been reproduced beyond any one country through, you know, neoliberal capitalism and through health capitalism, But these laws over, you know, two, three, four hundred years begin to create this taxonomy of the the non-working poor, the working poor, the valid non-working poor, and the deviant non-working poor, and begins to really sort of separate between these different groups of people, creating a kind of complexity and taxonomy of the working class, the surplus class. And sort of what the state's responsibility is to each and to, to sort of which each has a, a different moral framework assigned to it as well. For example, in the United States at 65, um, you get Medicare and Social Security. You get access to the socialized medicine because you've entered into the age bracket of being um, validly non-working. But you can't access Medicare and before then at a younger age, unless you're declared permanently disabled through a program called Social Security Disability Insurance in the US. So these kinds of ideas, right, we sort of trace back a lot of these frameworks that start to shape the economic valuation of life, particularly of the surplus class as a kind of leech, as a kind of burden or a parasitic constituency that that capitalism has to manage in order for us to continue to have sort of upward growth or 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 just even balance within the labor market in some framework. So this this kind of relationship why it matters, right? Is not just that, you know, we've sorted people into different categories and we treat people differently, but that the treatment and specifically the the abandonment of the you know, non-deserving non-working poor that this is a a really key component to labor discipline. This is how we um, compel people to work, not just through making not working illegal, again, which they explicitly did, but through creating these kinds of taxonomies and types and classes of who qualifies and perpetuating through law and through social reproduction the idea that communities sort of become responsible for the burdens that they generate and, and in an extremely, you know, hyper localized way. And so part of what is important about the statute of laborers and the poor laws is not just what they said about about poverty and what they said about our relationship to work, but also what they said about requirements for membership in the body politic. And work becomes the most sort of key way of Making someone legible as a citizen, making someone legible as being part of the demos, part of the membership of the nation and of who matters. And it's a really key idea, not just for developing like labor discipline, developing these kinds of incentives that might keep someone from being ever inadvertently mistaken for someone who's not a valid worker, you know, the kind of Stakes at play here were, um, you know, that people were arrested, they were sent to work camps, they were put in stockades in the street, you know, the punishment for not working was really severe. And so not only was there a kind of social outcast function that that begins to exist as synonymous with someone who's a non-worker and also synonymous with someone who's basically defrauding their community and therefore invalidating their membership of, of that community, but also that the kind of health of the nation, of society, of the community, of any of us, really depended on the state's ability to accurately count, manage, and minimize this population from ever exploding, lest it overwhelm the quote-unquote healthy, productive people who were supporting these kinds of um, quote-unquote sort of social parasites. And so this is you know, uh, one of the first times that this idea becomes really cemented into law. And then as the colonial agenda sort of expands in the United States, and they're looking for ways to manage populations of dependence within the colonies in the US, these laws are um, imported wholesale from from the UK system starting in the 1600s to begin creating some of the very first legal definitions of, you know, non-competence or of madness or of intellectual disability that that occur within the U.S. legal system, and so it's really important to always understand how these relationships that we have to the various identities that we're given at different points in our life. You know, many of us are going to exist in a bunch of these categories throughout our life, um, whether we're temporarily unemployed, long-term unemployed, disabled, retired, etc., pre-working age. These are all things that we're going to sort of transition in and out of, and. All of these things are sort of defined relative to people's values as workers, and that is really fundamentally sort of what underlies the economic valuation of life, which is a very key tenet of of liberalism. If you look back to Adam Smith, if you look back to the sort of early liberal thinkers, um, you know, they thought a lot like Malthus. They felt that (laughs) people um, were only worthwhile if they could be producers, if they could be productive, and that people who were not productive, you know, I mean, Adam Smith said himself, like, people were not productive. Like, he questioned whether or not they were even human. And one of the sort of ideas that we are hoping to really uh, sort of tear open for people and give them some threads to pull to really start to question is, is that segment of the population that's that we're told is so much of a burden, that we're told is not valuable at all, are they really worthless? <laughs> right? Um, and the answer is uh, surprisingly no, right? That there are so many ways that people who do not work Um, participate in the economy, many of ways that we participate in the economy involuntarily, whether we're workers or not, where our bodies become sites of surplus value generation and surplus labor and surplus extraction, where we, you know, become the economy literally with with our bodies, with our care, with the things that we have to pay for in order to survive, just our bare survival needs, you know, these are all... (laughs) in a lot of ways, industries that have been made available for capture. The maintenance of our survival is something that is highly commodified. So holding those two sort of conflicting truths, right? Like, which actually is it? Are the surplus populations worthless and a drain on society and a demographic eugenic threat to the future of the nation? Or is this a population of people who um, maybe produce quote unquote value through non-traditional means maybe these are people who are even more essential to the economy than workers because whole billions of dollars um, you know are sort of f- passed through these systems that are that are designed for the ma- the management and the care and the supervision of the surplus right so it's really actually difficult to argue that for example like in the United States that retired people, do not quote-unquote contribute to the economy. Without sort of a population of elders, you lose a huge population of patients. You lose all of the people in nursing facilities. You lose people who need home care. And that's millions and millions of jobs in each country. And so if we start to really actually tease out the ways that our bodies interact with the economy beyond just this relationship of the wage on the individual side of employment, then you start to see how... Really clearly, there is just so much about what we think about as health, right, which is actually a description not of any sort of intrinsic quality that we have as a person, but is more of a description of what services do we have access to via our identity through the administrative state. And that's going to depend on your citizenship, on your income, on the country that you're in, and fundamentally, you know, sort of health communism, which is why we're demanding more than Simply health finance reforms or sort of reforms of bringing other countries up to a kind of median level <laughs> of uh, sort of humane capitalism or ethical capitalists or sort of a quasi-socialized medicine system, and why we say, you know the demand actually has to be all care for all people, is that we we cannot actually create a kind of liberatory way of giving people access to the resources they need to survive without undoing this fundamental relationship. Of um, sort of how we value the the population in general, and sort of who gets to be a part of the we, and who doesn't get to be a part of the we.
0: Yeah, I was just thinking as well about your comment there about the kind of political imaginary that healthcare kind of shapes, and in the N- in the UK, it feels like there's a real hesitancy to critique the NHS to kind of challenge the mythology that surrounds it partly because it's a very, I guess, strategically helpful in some ways, mythology, you know, it's a concrete example of what, well, some would argue it's a concrete example of what the left are trying to push. Um, And I guess, what do you think kind of opens up in terms of the sort of horizon of possibility when we start to um, unpick that mythology, mythology? I mean, For those that might be hesitant to do that, I mean, why is it so essential that we look at, for example, kind of Nye Bevan's eugenicist kind of politics and the role that the NHS plays in uh, kind of maintaining certain structures of heteronormatively, you know, ideas of the family and of gender and um, things, you know, kind of the role in the surveillance state, I mean, why why should we on the left actually not be preciously holding on to this myth and and really actually digging into it and demanding more
1: well i think at a base level people in the uk deserve so much more than the nhs that we have and they deserve so much more than just mere protection from privatization and, and protection from the encroachment of of things like you know america's united healthcare who come in And take all this consulting money that, you know, would be much better spent on nurses' salaries and improving the quality of life of the people who are administering the actual care in the NHS. Part of it is, I think, as you're saying, we have an attachment to the small things that we have been able to do. I mean, if you compare apples to oranges and you're looking at the NHS to the U.S. in terms of outcomes, in terms of access to care, there is definitely an advantage to being in the United Kingdom. But... What is lost in us putting the NHS up on a pedestal that also at the same time can celebrate the things about it that we want? Like, you know, being able to create systems to distribute resources, not just uh, to each individual patient, but uh, physically throughout space, spatial resources, right? That's one of the things that the NHS attempts to create a system to deal with, you know, in practice... Does the NHS actually accomplish that? I think it's questionable, especially depending on which community you're talking about, depending on where spatially you're talking about, and depending on what type of care you're looking for. Now, like in one sense, I totally get the 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 reticence to critique it, because if you're constantly in a position where we are uh, defending the NHS from defunding. If we're defending the NHS from privatization, that that really raises the incentive against critiquing it, right? Because in theory, you wouldn't want to be putting down this thing because you're trying to build it up as something good in order to justify continuing the same amount of spending towards it, essentially, as as the year prior. Um, and And... <laughs> I I totally understand that and I get that kind of short term calculus, but it it is a short term decision and it comes with long term consequences that take away from the capacity that we have to build international solidarity that, you know, folks in the U.S. could have to support folks in the U.K., that folks in Canada have could, could have towards supporting folks in the U.K. If we think about the kinds of conversations that sometimes happen between leftists in the U.K. and the U.S., It can come down to an argument where people, if they complain about their experience with the U.S., uh, with with the NHS in the U.K., people in the U.S. say, well, fuck you. Like, your care is so much better. At least you don't have private insurance. At least you don't have, you know, pharmacy benefit managers. At least you don't have Blue Cross Blue Shield. But that is not a good reason to not (laughs) critique something, right? Like. We are not in a race to the bottom against our comrades in other countries. We are in a a race against capitalists together, right? And if we want to actually be building the kind of solidarity required to tackle these corporations which are involved in things like trying to privatize the NHS and also administering the semi-public-private welfare state in the United States, then the only way we're going to do that is by being able to scale our critiques up to the level that these corporations are actually operating at, which is not at the national level, but at an international level. And if we think about pharmaceuticals, this is a really good way to sort of see the point of trying to think this way, right? Because if we were just to, for example, formulate our critique of Pfizer around what Pfizer has done in the United States and, you know, leave that kind of global reach that Pfizer has off the table that really limits kind of our perspective for even being able to think of solutions or demands of what we would want of Pfizer, because ultimately the, the sort of broader spectrum that we're working with when we talk about health, this is a kind of global scale. This is not a scale that is actually um super nationalistic, as much as we're taught to think of it that way. This is something that cannot be contained by borders. And so I think you know, what we've learned in the United States in the disability movement, and I am disabled, so I sort of come from this line of thinking. This informs a lot of where my analysis is sort of started from is if we look at the Americans with Disabilities Act, which is, very much like the NHS, sort of held up as a gold standard. Um, Mm. You know, if the NHS is the gold standard of socialized medicine, then the ADA is considered a kind of global gold standard of disability policy. And for a very long time in the United States, it was really not welcome critique. It was something that if your work engaged with these kinds of critiques of the ADA, if you said the problem with the ADA is that it's a capitalist civil rights law that it says that our um, accommodations are only worthwhile and valuable if they can be done with no cost burden on the employer. This is a law that was drafted and passed by conservatives. This is a law that was sold as a way to get people off of welfare. Oh, and also, you know, get some more disabled people employed. And, And so if we, you know, if we left all that critique off the table, if we continued to ignore those people who, you know, very early on after the law was passed, like Marta Russell, who we talk about her work in the book, mm-hmm. you know, we're very vocal about the limitations of the ADA, the need for more than the ADA. Then I think, you know, if we had if we had sort of fully suppressed those critiques back then and said, listen, we can't afford to critique the ADA, you know, which and, and people tried to argue this. Many people still argue this. I, I mean, we get hate mail every time we talk about the ADA on my podcast up panel because people are like, well, why? What are you doing shitting on like the, the gold standard yeah. of disability rights? And it's like, well, the ADA is not enough. And the ADA uh, really kind of slowed a lot of the organizing in the United States. In the 40 years before its passage, we had 70, 80 federal laws dealing with disability. In the 30 years after its passage, we've had two, I think, in the U.S., um, Maybe three. I might be counting wrong. I might be remembering wrong. So these things also, these sort of legal frameworks, these policy victories, they can also have what uh, theorist Dean Spade calls like a kind of, you know, it kind of, it's like a demotivating uh, chill that happens as a result. You know, it can slow organizing. It can slow building solidarity outside of the very narrow nationalistic sort of frameworks that we're already working in. And if we want to do anything to improve our kind of conditions here in the U.S., for example, when it comes to disability legislation, then really putting our sort of gold standard law up on a pedestal is not only not going to help us, but it's not going to help anyone else in any other country who's, uh, you know, got the ADA there as an example of why not only, you know, you know, maybe they don't have to do as much as the ADA does, but also why we can't go beyond the ADA. If that's the gold standard, then that becomes where we stop. And that becomes a point where we can sort of start to negotiate compromise down from. And ultimately, conceptually speaking, that's why even though there is risk to critiquing the NHS, to critiquing the ADA, there's actually so much value in there if we start to think about things, not just in terms of the immediate short term, but as a kind of complicated need to balance both the short and long-term and the national and the international in our demands, in our praxis, in our organizing. If I here in the United States am advocating for Medicare for all by saying we want something as good as the NHS, that undermines my comrades in the UK who are saying we want something better than the NHS. And and this is fundamentally, I think, the kind of Value that the left can, can really bring to society in some sense is that we have the balls to make some of these critiques and we have the analysis and the kind of background that can bring these critiques into a context that really helps to show not just, you know, how we can make systems better or how systems are limited, but actually how we actually do have the capacity, the resources, the knowledge and the technology to be able to deliver people. The things that they need, which we tell them now we can't because of the kind of constraints that actually exist as a result of capitalism and not as a result of nature or any sort of real um, physical constraint to resources, but it's a conceptual constraint to resources that we perpetuate by holding our tongues, critiquing the, the limitations of these policies that are or policies and frameworks that are that are really kind of existing as this Platonic ideal in the horizon of what other, you know, um, organizing capacities might hope to live up to one day.
0: Yeah, that's a really, really good point. So thinking long term, and thinking about the internationalist nature of health communism, there's going to be a different form or kind of look and feel to health communism in each of the different contexts that we kind of work together internationally to kind of manifest it in and make happen. And I guess I'd be interested, I mean, you don't have to kind of lay out a full kind of programmatic plan or anything, but I'd be really interested to hear how you think that long-term work looks with regard to the NHS, specifically what kind of transformation has to take place for the NHS to contribute to, serve as the foundation to, or make way for health communism um, and kind of what kind of organizing you think needs to happen inside and outside of the various institutions that make it up?
1: Well, I think what the NHS really offers us more than anything is perhaps the best, best example of a kind of ready-made system to facilitate collaboration and solidarity between patients and providers between the health workers and the health receivers, because as we know, the people who are receiving care are, you know, not, uh, it's not that these two populations are separate, right? That like health workers never need care themselves, but there is a kind of fundamental, you know, in some ways, often it can be a class divide. It can be an expertise divide. It can be a kind of social role division. But there is a pervasive idea that the kind of patient population and the worker population that they should not mix, that that's not necessarily a good thing. You see this when nurses go on strike. Sometimes patients groups will be really critical of nurses going on strike saying, well, what are are we going to do with the nurses on strike? Well, you know, what is it going to do to your care to have the nurses continue to work under substandard working conditions? What does it do to your care long term to have, you know, the cost of living not be met by people's wages when they're working in healthcare? What does it do to the, your care long term for, um, you know, healthcare positions to be gate kept by certain types of education that can often be inaccessible or that sometimes needs to be paid for privately, or that even when you have sort of quotas on hiring that artificially constrain, um, the workforce based on some, and the NHS loves this based on some idea of like, what projected care needs might be, saying, okay, well, we're projecting, we're only gonna hire X amount of nurses over the next 10 years, because this is what we calculated our care needs to be 10 years ago, and we're not changing from that, that this is is a key moment for patients and providers of all kinds to come together and say, you know what, my care, your workplace, these are united fights, Mm -hmm. and we can build so much more power through trying to find ways to create this kind of organizing, to create solidarity and collectivity that sort of breaks a lot of these fundamental divides. Actually, if you look back at you know at the kind of turn of the century, where you have, for example, uh, sort of other systems of healthcare being set up. Um, you have like some experiments going on in in the Soviet Union, um, <laughs> where you you have sort of these moments where people start to try and like reconfigure certain large national health systems. And there are a lot of failures with what the Soviet Union did. And a lot of those failures, uh, you know, people who are writing at the time attributed it to an inability to deal with this fundamental divide between providers and patients and uh, unwillingness to try and undo some of the class relationships that have characterized the profession of medicine for, for a long time and sort of characterized the social reproduction of physician expertise. And a lot of these are really difficult, intangible things to be able to describe. And in the United States where our system is so decentralized, so bifurcated, you know, it's a, it's a public private morass, it's a giant tangle of necklaces that are tied in a knot mm. that you're never gonna like get untied it makes it so much harder for us to start to show these contradictions in the US and show opportunities of what patients and providers coming together in solidarity can actually do in terms of building pressure, building power. And frankly, if, you know, this kind of critique were to really get going in the United Kingdom, I don't think that it would be successful without comrades in America, you know, saying, hey, listen, um, we're not going to have this zero-sum fight with folks in the UK over who's got it worse. We're going to support the demands of the working conditions and the care conditions that folks are making over here because wins in anyone's domain can be leveraged as wins in your domain. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, this is the kind of approach to healthcare that we don't typically have. A lot of it is often sort of justified on oh well this is a good health reform that leftists should get behind because it's going to save us so much money or this is an inefficient spending situation and if we just did it our way we would be spending money better and and that ultimately those kinds of arguments were already on the back foot we're already losing we're already capitulating to the demands of the capitalist political economy of health and so i really see the first step toward refusal um, which which might be a very long game you know our, our horizon our mid to long term horizon might just be approaching a kind of moment of refusal or of, or of naming the fact that the, the current system that we have now is not the only way it can be, right that there are alternatives to health capitalism that there is an inverse there is a, a sort of negative to every positive and a positive to every negative. and so, If we want to even start to try and name these things and refuse these things in our organizing, then we have to start looking for the moments where our rhetoric, our logic, our ways of thinking about these things, that they're operating on a zero-sum mindset, that they're operating from a standpoint of saying, if one group gets something, another group doesn't or loses out. And fundamentally, oftentimes, this kind of framework, and again, it ties back into this worker surplus binary, into this idea that, you know, fundamentally, administrative law is there to protect the haves from being drained by the have-nots. And that is fundamentally not actually what those laws do. They create taxonomies, they make people available for extraction, and they undermine the kind of power and collectivity that we can build if we push beyond these divisions and these social roles that we're sort of pushed into and told are never supposed to mix.
0: Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure you're aware of this, but nurses have actually balloted to go on strike in the NHS for the first time nationwide in, I think, the history of um, the NHS. Um, so that's a really important kind of discussion that we're kind of in the moment of having. So
1: Yeah, it's I'm, I'm, exactly why I'm thinking about this right now. And unfortunately, that... <laughs> theoretical posts that i was joking about you know of people saying well my care conditions like what are you going to do that wasn't theoretical like i've come across too many of those in the yeah. last month around this strike specifically in this strike authorization at all you know the kind of I- indignant uh outrage at, at nurses mm. having to make this decision without acknowledging you know uh <laughs> I was talking to my own nurse about this who comes to my house to do home care infusions every four weeks. I said, you know, like, this is uh, just awful that that people are not even thinking about what would have to go into the sort of decision-making process that would even lead people to getting to that point of saying, okay, I think we're going to have to do this, you know, action that has been um, sort of beyond where we've been willing to go before. And we recognize the kind of risk and danger, but that there's a need here you know and we have to trust each other if we're saying you know I, in my workplace like i have a need and like to to be able to give people adequate care like we have to take this risk right now this is a, a decision that no one is making lightly so yeah. why is it that our rhetoric sort of centers around okay if nurses are striking it means patients lose out if nurses don't strike patients also lose out like i'm sorry that's just unfortunately how it works
0: Thank you for listening to Red Medicine and make sure you subscribe if you don't want to miss the second half of this conversation in which we discuss the Socialist Patients Collective and what it means to turn your illness into a weapon.